Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled to have Dr. Vandana Shiva on today. She is a Time Magazine environmental hero. Forbes magazine said she's one of the seven most powerful women on the globe. Vandana Shiva is an internationally acclaimed author and one of the world's most dynamic and provocative thinkers on food sovereignty. Trained as a quantum physicist with a lifetime of ecological activism, Dr. Vandana Shiva has spent over 35 years applying her knowledge of non-separation and interconnectedness to help create healthier food and agriculture systems across the globe. Dr. Vandana Shiva, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Michael, pleasure. (laughs) Dr. Vandana Shiva, you know, I was thinking the other day about the relationship had Alexander Wendt on the show and we were talking about physics and uh, quantum social change. And I was thinking about your background in physics. And I just thought maybe we could start with, what's the relationship of being a physicist and being a leader in the regenerative agriculture movement? I did uh, my PhD in the foundations of quantum theory because I was extremely dissatisfied with uh, the idea of a fragmented world about which we think mechanistically. I'd grown up in the forests of the Himalayas. Forests are living, streams are living. Life is bursting in every part of the forest. And this idea of reductionist mechanistic thought never really satisfied me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd also had some spent time training in India's nuclear uh, center at BARC, Baba Atomic Research Center. And it was my sister who woke me up to aspects of radiation hazards Uh, as a physicist. You learn how to do transition equations. You don't learn about radiation harm. Uh, So I said, no, I want to then go deeper into the conceptual aspects. And what my dedicated training in uh, quantum theory taught me is exactly the way I thought of the world, that everything is related, nothing is separable. My thesis was non-locality in quantum theory. You don't pretend in quantum theory that you can separate particles. They stay related. Uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The world is uncertain. And to me, resilience is knowing there'll be uncertainty and not collapsing because things are not predictable. And they're not predictable because both nature as well as in our personal lives, as well as in our communities, what we have is potential. So in Nevada City, the farmers had the potential to organize and created a community, but farmers have a potential to stay separate and unorganized and be constantly devastated by the greed of agribusiness. And now with the havoc of climate change. So those principles are to me exactly the same principles 
that apply to ecology. Ecology is about interconnectedness. Ecology is about the potential of a seed becoming either an acorn tree or a wheat field. And it is about the uncertainty that climate will change. It, anyway, seasons are variable. You don't work, live in a world of permanent 20 degrees centigrade. And plants adapt to that. And it's time for us to realize that we must be like plants, intelligent like plants, adaptive like plants, resilient like plants, evolutionary like plants. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for me, the, whether it's the discipline of quantum theory or the disciplines that address regenerative agriculture and the practice of regenerative agriculture, the foundational principles are the same ecological principles. It's only the illusion of industrial farming and the illusion of mechanistic thought that make you pretend that the soil has nothing to do with the plant and fertility comes from factories, that the plant has nothing to do with your health and how you treated the soil. What you eat doesn't matter because it's just a commodity you stuff yourself with. And I think all these artificial boxes are right now collapsing by the reality of our experiences on the planet as well as with our bodies. Mm, Brilliant. Thank you so much, packed into what you said. You're going to be talking about regenerative agriculture. Could you just talk about what that is for people uh, that are listening that might not know what that means? Uh, regenerative agriculture is really working with, working with the regenerative capacity of a living earth and a living organisms, trillions of living organisms in the soil. The amazing brilliance of biodiversity of plants, which we have lost so much of these to eat 10,000 varieties of crops, species of crops. And now we trade in about 12, and the largest expansion are in four, which are GMO crops, the corn, canola, soya, cotton, only because this is where the patents lie, and this is where the royalties come back. Mm-hmm. Um, industrial agriculture is uh, agriculture of predation. It's an extractive agriculture. And I have realized in my many years now of spending time trying to understand why things went wrong, beginning with my experience with Punjab and the Green Revolution, my experience with Bhopal and the devastation 35 years ago, where thousands were killed because of a gas leak from a factory of Union Carbide, now owned by Dow and DuPont. I realized in, in that work to understand, when I was trying to understand why do we do agriculture in such violent ways, I realized this violence actually came from Hitler's lamps. Mm. Everything we use has its origins in the labs to kill people. Yeah. And the gases that were used for the concentration camps are the basis of all the pesticides that evolved. The explosives industry, the ammunition industry, is the basis of chemical fertilizers, the same processes of fixing nitrogen at high temperatures. Um, And even when you look at things like Agent Orange, after all, there were war chemicals sprayed on Vietnam during the Vietnam War. So what we've done is taken war chemicals, turned them into agrochemicals, and now we call them plant protection inputs uh, to protect the plant 
Uh, and it's not a, no wonder that insects are disappearing. It's no wonder that plant varieties have disappeared. It's no wonder that soil diversity has disappeared and led to desertification. And most significantly, it is no wonder that our gut biodiversity has been so devastated because this war that began against people then began became war on our farms and fields, came to our kitchen and back to our body, bodies through our gut. Um, so regenerative agriculture regenerates the health of the planet and it regenerates our health because we are not separate from the earth. Since we're on the war metaphor there, one of the things I've heard you say a number of times is that food is a weapon. Would you explain what you mean by that? The phrase food is a weapon was used by Kissinger during the oh. Vietnam War. Um, Vietnam is a rice culture. And Kissinger realized that when you grow rice, you have to grow it as community. You know, it's so labor intensive that the whole village must come to a field and then go to the next field and then go to the next field. So transplanting builds community. And all my experience has shown the same, that rice goes hand in hand with community. So Kissinger said, if we shift the diet to bread based on wheat, we will not just make them dependent on us. We will be able to break the cohesion that comes from rice cultivation. And so he said, food is a weapon because when you control food, you control people. When you control weapons, you control governments. And that's why I have expanded this to what has happened in recent years with GMOs and patenting and the poison cartel having moved from Hitler's labs into our farms that basically for them, seed is controlling of the food. And, um, and, but the problem is when you control seed, you control life on earth, not just people. And I believe that in farming, uh, in regenerative farming, in biodiverse farming, we actually create the possibilities and potential for peace with the earth and peace between communities. Hmm. You mentioned the huge loss of diversity, which I want to talk about in a minute. But one of the things that I would really like you to talk about is the relationship of women to seeds. You know, women have been the seed keepers. It's something that I am reminded by the day. Women were the first to have domesticated crops, which means plants that were otherwise wild were bred and selected in order to be able to grow in one place and not shatter anymore. Across the world, if you look at who saved seeds, it was the women. And women saved seeds because seed held the future. Seed held the potential of the promise of a future. And Women as seed keepers were also seed breeders. Women were seed custodians. Uh, people think saving seed is so easy. It, is, it takes as much care as bringing up a child. And I, a wonderful seed keeper of ours in Orissa, where we've saved more than 1,020 varieties of rice, including 
rices that can tolerate salt after hurricanes and cyclones, rices that can resist flooding. You know, they talk about the subgene. There's no one gene that allows you to tolerate submergence. It's a complex of gene. Our seed keeper in Orissa talks about those thousand and more varieties as a thousand and more babies. Every seed needs attention. Because to maintain the uniqueness of this diversity is a very caring and very intelligent work. And so Navdania has created 120 to maybe now 40 community seed banks to reclaim seed from the intellectual property privatization by the poison cartel and reclaim it and the commons of farming communities, particularly in the hands of women. I would love it if you would share with the people what this whole seed patent ripoff, how it began and what it is, how they, what they do to a seed in order to patent it and what that results in the kind of seed that you get. In 1984, when Punjab burst into violence and Bhopal genocide happened, and I started to look at agriculture for the United Nations University. I was working on a program on conflicts over resources. Because of that, I wrote a book called The Violence of the Green Revolution. And that then threw me into agriculture discussions, including the future of biotechnology and the new technologies that were coming, the capacity to splash genes from one organism and put them into another. So I was invited to a meeting in 1987 in Geneva. And outside Geneva, part of the retreat was outside Geneva. And at this meeting, the same poison cartel that had brought us the chemicals, same poison cartel that had made gases for the concentration camps, was now saying we don't make enough money from chemicals, so we need to own the seed. But the only way to own the seed through a patent, but we can only take patents when we genetically engineer the seed, because now we can pretend we've made something new, and we have to implement this worldwide because then there aren't enough profits in Europe and the United States. So all the farmers of the world became their market. And they said by the year 2000, we'll be four companies, five companies, and they're four today. And no farmer will have any seed except what we sell them. And we will control food and health. That's the day I realized that I had to start saving seeds. I'd also start with my government to not allow the illusion that seed is a machine invented by a corporation. Seed is life in continuity. Seed is the past evolution in nature, billions of years, 200,000 years of our presence on this planet. And it is all of the future potential. So, Genetic engineering was invented to claim invention of seed. At that point, no one talked about we feed the world. Without us, people will starve. At that point, they were honest because they were looking at a new colony, at a new territory. And they basically were honest enough to say, we've got to do genetic engineering in order to claim we have invented the seed. Now, because this was such a false claim, why was it a false claim? Shooting a gene into the cells of a plant is not making that plant just as much 
as a doctor inserting a little uh, bit of steel into your hand after you break it. Can't say I own your body. The body is regenerating itself. Our cells are regenerating themselves all the time. It's as stupid as saying, I'll bring a chain to your house and then I will claim that I am the builder, the architect and the owner of your house. Now, we don't allow that in things like buildings, but we allowed it in the building blocks of life because of the, the language they evolved, intellectual property rights. And I've always said, jokingly, I said two things for people to understand clearly what's going on. I said, GMO means God move over whatever you believe is your creator. <laughs> yeah? God move over is GMO. We will now claim to be the creators of life. Mm. And when they talk about owning life and creating life, <coughs> they're basically behaving like life lords, lords of life, the, the creation of life, and then out of it, wanting to collect rents from the work that nature does. Yeah. But a seed very nature is to reproduce, to treat that reproduction as your invention, to treat the traits in the seed that farmers have evolved over centuries as your invention is biopiracy. It's a name I use for theft from nature of her capacities and theft of farmers breeding. Even today, 99.9% of what we eat has come from farmers breeding. 0.1% has come from industry. And that too now is a toxic input because after all of these years of giving amazingly grand images, we'll grow on move food on the moon, we'll grow it in the Sahara, we'll grow it on toxic dumps. I've debated with the industry on these terms. Today, all we have is two dominant traits, herbicide resistant, crops that would control weeds and instead you have super weeds particularly in the united states and you have cancer from glyphosate you have the disappearance of the monarch butterfly and the other is the bt toxin crops where you put a toxin into the plant and uh, even though we didn't allow patents on seed in india monsanto collected royalties pushed our farmers into debt most of the 300,000 suicides of india are in the cotton belt of India, at least 85%. And we've done studies on the soil, 66% beneficial organisms have disappeared. We've done studies on pollinations. There are no bees on Bt toxin crops. So when you start to put toxins into plants or make plants resistant to toxins like glyphosate, you really do create a toxic world. And I feel it's also toxic in the mind because by defining yourself as the, as the manipulator of life and owner of life, as I said, you're playing God. And you are playing God in order to destroy life. Because the more you destroy, the more you control. Yeah. I don't want to step over something that you said because I really want the impact to be heard. Close to 300,000 farmers have committed suicide by drinking Roundup for the most part because of the losses of their family farms, their ability to use the soil. The idea that now seeds can only be one generation and that they have to continue to buy from the 
agrochemical companies is one thing. Another is the drifting of the pollen from these seeds into the non-GMO seeds, which, of course, we have many cases. And I don't know how acquainted people are with these issues, but they're huge issues all over the world. And maybe you can speak to that also. We've witnessed in our time three kinds of pollution. The first pollution is the direct pollution that comes from fossil fuels. Close to the earth, and it is air pollution. But further up in the atmosphere, it is greenhouse gases that are giving us climate change. And as my studies, including my book, Soil Not Oil, shows most of the greenhouse gases actually come from an industrial globalized agriculture model. The second pollution is chemical pollution. This is what Rachel Carson wrote about in Silent Spring. The birds die. Spring is silent. And when we were negotiating the Convention on Biological Diversity, which was signed in Rio in 1992, I was at that time very active. I constantly warned governments that there would be a new kind of pollution called genetic pollution, where genes that were introduced into organisms where they didn't belong would then move into related organisms through cross-pollination, through wind, through drift, and this is genetic pollution. Now, because of the kind of time we were in, we were able to introduce an article in the convention, Article 93, through it get a biosafety protocol, and the protocol is basically to stop this kind of pollution and make the polluter pay. Of course, all you have is both in the climate problem, a denial industry, and in the genetic contamination problem, a denial industry. And they have all the money, they control the science, they control the media, which is why I thank you, Michael, for maintaining independent media. It is so important in our time, as is independent science, as are independent family farms. Wherever independence can be conserved, those seeds of freedom must be protected. Mm. It's kind of a conundrum that independence leads to diversity. I think that's an interesting aspect of it. Let's shift a little bit and talk about the part that organic farming plays in solving the problem of climate change. Most of the greenhouse gases contribution comes from a fossil fuel-based industrial agriculture and food system. Of course, directly the use of fossil fuels as um, you replace farm animals, which work with you. You know, we, we were plowing with horses. We plow with, in my, on our farm in the valley, we plow with bullocks. We work, they work. And work is a blessing. Work is a, not a curse. Ask a street and homeless dweller with no work whether that kind of redundancy from society can be treated as leisure. No. Work is meaning. And that's why people like Tolstoy, people like Ruskin, people like Gandhi talked about bread labor, that we have to give our labor to grow our bread. Chemical fertilizers are big users of fossil fuel. After all, they burn fossil fuels at high temperature to make chemical fertilizers for one kilo of fertilizer, you use two liters of diesel. But that's not the only problem. You are then emitting the most noxious 
greenhouse gas nitrous oxide, which is 300 times more damaging in destabilizing the climate. And then instead of having animals work with us humans as animals, we are animals. People forget we are animals. And when we work with the rest of biodiversity, we don't emit methane. Methane comes from those things in your country you call CAFO, concentrated animal farm operations. They stink when you go by. They put all their waste in water systems, polluting the water, but they're also polluting the air with methane. Uh, and methane is the third big greenhouse gas. You add all this together, is the industrial system. So how does organic contribute? The first thing is, with organic, you're rebuilding the capacity of farms to be converters of nitrogen through nitrogen-fixing crops and converters of carbon dioxide, first into plants through photosynthesis, and then through the plants into soil carbon. You are healing the broken carbon and nitrogen cycle the nitrogen rupture is even more severe at this point than the carbon rupture in terms of broken uh, boundaries. So you're healing the cycle through, you know, what is organic farming? Organic farming is nothing but giving back living organic matter to the soil where it belongs. That process is then your biggest service to the earth. And if the world went organic, we could address the climate problem and the buildup of greenhouse gas emissions within a decade. People would also have good food. Mm. But it isn't just that we pull out the excess carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide from the atmosphere. We make the soil more resilient. The soil has more capacity to hold water. With 0.5% organic matter, we can hold 80,000 liters. In California, if this is what they were doing, they wouldn't have the extended droughts. So industrial agriculture contributes to the intensification of droughts, and then it contributes to the vulnerability of farms to droughts. We reduce both through organic farming. Mm -hmm. And my book, Soil Not Oil, is there. We have a report called Seeds of Hope, Seeds of Resilience. And none of this, for me, has come from a book. It has come from living with nature, living with farming communities, observing very, very intimately how beautifully in balance they function and enhancing our contribution mm. to make that balance even wider. Oh, brilliant. Let me tell our listeners, if you just tuned in, I'm talking to Dr. Vandana Shiva. She's going to be in Nevada City at the upcoming Food and Farming Conference, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. But uh, I want to spend as much time talking about these issues as we can. Actually, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Nabdanya and the work you've been doing there and how's that, how that relates to the global movement of regenerative ag agriculture. As I mentioned earlier, my work on seed began as soon as I heard the corporations wanted to own the seed through patenting, and for that they wanted to push genetic engineering and have a global treaty of intellectual property within the then General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, which became the World Trade Organization. For more than four years, I went village to village, just saved seeds, collected seeds. And then in 91, I realized it had to become a movement. It can't be one individual with two feet and the limits that the two feet put on us. So 
I then created an organization called Navdanya Trust, which means nine seeds, but it also means the new gift. For us, nine seeds is a symbol of diversity. And I was taught this by a tribal indigenous peasant who was growing nine crops. When I saw the nine crops and I said, wow, nine crops, he gave me this discourse of how the nine planets in Indian cosmology, we assume two shadow planets, nine planets, or nine planets in the cosmos, the nine crops in the field, and the diversity in our body is one continuum of balance and harmony through diversity. And he said, I have to maintain this balance. And that's why I grow nine crops. So I said, this is what we'll call our seed saving movement, Navdanya. And uh, Navdanya, which really started only as a seed saving movement, then grew into the organic movement because with chemical farming, you can't use native seeds. You know, they have been declared inferior and they don't have the level of response to chemical, but to an organic, they do very well. The other thing is chemical farming requires monocultures because it is an external input system. Monocultures then are intolerant of diversity. On the other hand, with native seeds, we can do brilliant organic farming. And our work is showing that when you intensify biodiversity rather than chemicals, we can actually grow food for two times the world's population when you treat food not as stuff, but food as nourishment. And this is the indicator we've evolved, replacing yield per acre, which measures only nutritionally empty commodities and their weight, with health and nutrition per acre. And we do these measures on our farms. Our farmers are starting to adopt them. This system of biodiversity intensification then becomes the basis of regenerative agriculture. Then you have diversity of crops. It's not that you don't have insects. You have lots of insects, but you don't have a pest because not one of those insects becomes troublesome because between themselves, they have their harmony and the different plants are host to different insects. Mm. We have increased pollinators on the Navdanya farm compared to the forest next door, sixfold. Six times more pollinators on the farm just by growing biodiversity. Nutrition, I mentioned, we can grow two times the world's food needs and nutrition needs, but more, even more importantly, while the industrial agriculture system based on degeneration of everything, the climate system, the biodiversity of species leading to climate catastrophe and the six mass extinction, uh, displacing farmers, destroying our health, uh, it is degenerative in every aspect. Biodiverse agriculture that allows you to practice regenerative agriculture regenerates the planet, its ability to deal with climate systems, it's regeneration of species diversity. It's increase of nourishment, not just for humans, but for the bees and the pollinators and the earthworms and all the other beings on this planet. Most importantly, we've in, evolved another indicator called wealth per acre, that when you measure total net income, actually farmers earn more when they do regenerative agriculture because they're not hemorrhaging their earnings on big machines, chemicals, GMOs, royalties. Then if you add the cost to farmers, the cost to the environment, the cost to our health, that external externality is so high. For India, we did the calculation for farmers' damage and the environmental damage. It's $1.3 trillion mm. every year. 
So the visible economy and the shadow of the industrial agriculture's economy is equal in size. You add the health damages. The health damages of industrial farming are bigger than the formally assessed global economy. Yeah. Vinana Shiva, you mentioned the externalities. I think another thing to mention is the subsidies, certainly in the United States, and one of the issues politically of the revolving door between the chemical companies and the so-called protection of the government for these kinds of issues that you're talking about. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? And is that globally, I know in, in uh, North America that that's true, but I'm wondering, is that globally the subsidies, the interaction with the fossil fuel companies and the corruption, basically? <laughs> well, I mentioned, you know, when uh, Kissinger said food is a weapon, there was already the attempt to export the fossil fuel-based, chemical-based, poison-based agriculture model of industrial farming from the U.S. to the world. The World Trade Organization Agreement on Agriculture was literally drafted by Cargill, the world's biggest grain giant. The vice president was deputed to be in government and represent the United States in the negotiations. And what was Cargill's interest? To get the world's agriculture as a market, which meant you have to destroy the local farmers. So what was the revolving door only in the U.S.? And I always say, it doesn't matter which president you have. They basically are marketing agents for Monsanto and now Bayer. They are marketing agents for the fossil fuel industry because the lobby groups are so strong. In India, we did not have lobbyists. It was illegal. In India, we were a truly sovereign country, which is why I could help write laws that said seed is not an invention. Therefore, seed will not be patented, Article 3J of our patent law. I could write the law that says farmers have been breeders, farmers have rights. So breeders are not only industry. So we have a, the only country where we have a plant variety protection and a farmer's rights act. We in, include the farmers in the recognition of breeding. Today, we've got the American model of lobbying, of revolving doors, of, uh, of giving up the duty of a public system, which is what a government is supposed to be, of regulating business activities to protect the environment and the public good. That's the only reason governments exist. Otherwise, we can do everything ourselves. But there are big players who cause harm to the earth and who cause harm to public health. They have to be regulated, contained. That's why we created environmental laws. That's why we have public health systems. And what we are seeing in more and more countries, in, everywhere in the world, is a deregulation. Environmental deregulation, health deregulation, and an increase of subsidies to those who cause harm. So... It's amazing. I have a new book called Oneness Versus the 1%. And uh, it's available from New Internationalists in England. It's available from India, from a publisher, Women Unlimited. What I see happening is here is nature's creativity and farmers' innovation, pirated as invention of the companies. They collect rents. Then they take our tax money. 
to divert agriculture into more sustainable systems through subsidies. And then they create a distorted pricing system where the price of food lies and high cost food becomes cheap in the supermarket shelf and affordable food becomes costly. So organic is defined as a luxury consumption. I believe this issue is now an issue of what Gandhi called Satyagraha, the fight for truth. Because we are now talking about truth as truth, but truth as the life of the planet and truth as our health and our freedom. And it is not a narrow issue. It is a life and death issue. Every problem humanity is facing is rooted in this and we have to solve it. And we can only solve it by deepening democracy, no matter how difficult it is. Can you add to that ahimsa? Of course, as Gandhi said so clearly, the search for truth makes ahimsa and nonviolence an imperative. Because the search for truth between different species makes me look for the nonviolent relations between them. I don't look for the most powerful tool of exterminating species, which is what Roundup is when it comes to plant. It's designed to kill plants. It is an ecocidal weapon. So ahimsa and truth are two faces of the process of life and the process of good society. Mm. Another thing that's very disturbing that you might uh, want to address before we talk more about the conference is the increase now in colony collapse with the bees and other beneficial organisms. You mentioned that a little bit, but just for people to really recognize this is a huge, serious threat right now and is growing. The disappearance of insects is now being recognized in a large scale. 80% of insect species have disappeared since 1970 on the planet. It so happens that among the insects are pollinators like bees. We have killed our own partners. On our farm, we've done research and found that one third of the food is contributed by pollinators. When you shut the pollinators out, you lose one third the productivity. But it isn't just the bees and the pollinators. All insects have their role. The dung beetles have their role in recycling organic matter. And a world without insects is an impoverished world. They're calling it insectigodon. But insectigodon means extinction for other species that depend on those insects, the birds that eat those insects. If you look at the literature, the marketing literature of the poison cartel, you will see there's a leaf and there's an insect that comes and it eats it up. And then they have presented to the world the idea that every insect is an enemy to be exterminated. And that's why it is not an accident that insect species, including pollinators, bees, butterflies, are disappearing. We have to end this violence. For our sake, for the sake of those species, but for the sake of future generations. Because in fact, what I'm realizing that the smaller the species, the more important its role in maintaining the web of life. Can you speak a little bit about the individual's role? It seems like such an overwhelming 
fight, the odds are so huge with the money and the control of the media and so hard to even for people to get information unless they're looking for the information. What's the individual role in bringing unity from diversity? I'll come back to my quantum training again. Mm -hmm. One of the other aspects that differentiates the quantum view from the mechanical view is that it does not recognize an excluded middle. It's either, not either or, yeah? either you're with us or you're against us kind of logic, but and. There is no excluded middle. And because there's no excluded middle, A, to build movements, each of us can be different. That's fine. Just like in a diverse field or in a forest, diversity makes the whole. But even more importantly, the fact that we have individual responsibility cannot allow us to be blind to the fact that systems meant to protect the larger good, the common good, which is governments, which is public institutions, that they don't have a role. So individual responsibility is both the responsibility at the personal level, but the responsibility and right at the collective public level, which is where the issues of subsidies, the issues of regulation, the issues of not allowing criminals to get away with crimes against nature and humans, those all become part of the same fight. Now, when I started saving seed, I said, I'll save seed, no matter what. But I also worked with our government to make the kind of laws and policies that protect the, the seed, its diversity, and the farmer's right to save and exchange seed. So we have to do both because we are Earth citizens. And as Earth citizens, we participate in the Earth's process. And of course, you should have a garden. And I believe the world, if it started planting gardens everywhere and made the tiniest of spaces on a rooftop, on a balcony, a small farm, we could do so much regenerative work. But we cannot get away from our role as public citizens. And that's where I feel what's happening is more and more local governments are taking responsibility as national systems get hijacked by the corporations. And if you look at the cities, I've addressed the mayors uh, two or three times now. And this, at the local level, the institutions and the public are not different. They are the same. The same people become mayors who are today defending their city from GMOs. And uh, I think this getting over this excluded middle and either raw mentality that I will only I work at the personal level and oh, I will only work, lobby at, um, in Washington. No, the whole middle between this is available for us to blend in a creativity of diversity. Hmm. Beautiful. And what about our own personal diet? Our I think it's vital. I think it's vital, not only because the way we grow our food and what we eat is the single biggest determinant to the health of the planet and our health. But given that, sadly, criminals have taken over our food, the responsibility of taking care of our diet grows in proportion. Yes, brilliant. Tell us how you've been able to stop the huge agribusiness cartels, or at least slow them down. We have organized to 
build the movements that actually prevented the corporate vision. I mean, they had said by the year 2000, all seed will be in our hands. We are in the year 2020 and more and more seed banks and seed libraries are being created. There's a reclaiming going on on a world scale. I just saw today, the new results are showing that non-GMO corn is doing much better than GMO corn. And everywhere, the failure of the industrial experiment with our food and farming is staring us in the eye. And how do we organize against big powers who lie, big powers who steal, big powers who destroy the earth and our freedom? Well, it's so good to be together with you again and just so honored and deeply, deeply grateful for your work, Dr. Vandana Shiva. You've been an inspiration for me for 30 years and I'm just so happy to be able to in our in our little station, one of the last free speech, there's only 250 community radio stations in the entire United States, and we are the last bastion of free speech. And it's just an honor to have you come and join us in Nevada City. Thank you so much. Just much love to you, much gratitude. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, and greetings for 2020. Yes, to you too. <laughs> Safe bye travel. Bye. Bye. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.